Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of our World News Podcast. This podcast, along with all of our other news episodes, are part of Atlas News. Check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art and culture. Take a look at the journal's Bulletin from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication for multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds dot journal to see more please consider supporting us on patreon patreon.com slash analyze educate ko-fi ko-fi.com slash analyze educate or analyze educate.substack.com so since this is a part of atlas news if you are listening to this on the atlas news app you listen a day before everybody else if you're listening to this on my feed you're listening a day after it gets released on atlas news With that being said, we'll head into the episode. Okay, getting started off here, I'm actually going to switch around the format of these podcasts a little bit. I'm going to start it off with the Americas and stories like this is why. Looking at the United States, a Marine Corps helicopter went missing Tuesday night while en route to Marine Corps Air Station Miramar. That's in Southern California, just near San Diego. Five Marines were on board a CH-53E Super Stallion helicopter from Marine Heavy Helicopter Squadron 361, also known as the Flying Tigers, when it departed from Creech Air Force Base in Nevada. That's just outside of Los Angeles. Third Marine Air Wing reached out to local authorities for assistance around two o'clock in the morning and were assisted by the Civil Air Patrol and San Diego Sheriff's Office. A search area of the aircraft's last known location near Pine Valley, California, in Cleveland National Forest yielded no results. Additionally, ground crews were delayed due to winter storms in the area and terrain conditions. Now, if you were in Southern California, you probably know at this time that there was a pretty big winter storm going on. So much of the area of Southern California was affected, as was the north around the same time as well. The search was expanded and the crashed helicopter was found at about 9.08 in the morning, that same morning. The five Marines were declared dead on Thursday morning. They had been identified as Lance Corporal Donovan Davis. Crew Chief, 21 years old, of Olathe, Kansas. I hope I pronounced that right. Sergeant Alec Langan, Crew Chief, 23 years old, of Chandler, Arizona. Captain Benjamin Moulton, CH-53E pilot, 27 years old, of Emmett, Idaho. Captain Jack Casey, CH-53E pilot, 26 years old, of Dover, New Hampshire. And Captain Miguel Nava, CH-53 pilot, 28 years old, of Traverse City, Michigan. The exact reason for the crash is unclear at this time, but again, there was a snowstorm going on in the area and low visibility conditions at the time. I believe the aircraft uh, went silent around 11.45-ish Tuesday night, so pretty late. This is the second fatal CH-53E crash involving 3rd Marine Air Wing after a crash in 2018 killed four Marines as well. Of course, this is a terrible situation and it happens far too often and we will be praying for the families of these marines moving on to the presidential race we got a poll update these are averages from 538 biden's approval is at 38 percent. that is down one point from last week his disapproval is at 56 that is up one point trump's favorability is at 
42%. That is down one point from last week. His unfavorability is at 52%. That remains the same. Looking at the Democrat primary, Biden is at 71%. He is down one point. Uh, Dean Phillips is at 4%. Congressman Dean Phillips, he remains the same from last week. And Marion Williamson actually dropped out of the race over the week, so she's not in it anymore. Looking at the Republican primary polls, Trump is at 76%. He is up four points. Nikki Haley is at 18%. She is up one point. Looking at Republican polls for South Carolina specifically, Trump is at 65%. He's up three points. Nikki Haley is at 32%. She remains the same. Now, President Biden overwhelmingly won Sunday's South Carolina Democratic primary, taking all 55 delegates from the state. Biden got 96% of the vote. Marion Williamson got 2.1%. And Congressman Dean Phillips got one7 Now, looking at Nevada over the week, Nevada held both a primary election and a caucus for the Republican Party. It's a very odd situation. I think this is the first case of this ever happening. If I'm not mistaken, it is very, uh, very odd and rare. The primary election in Nevada is not binding, but the caucus is. So again, not really sure why this happened. Uh, Nikki Haley decided to not be in the caucus um, and go for the primary election instead. And then Trump did the exact opposite. He was not in the primary, but he was in the caucus. So the primary was held on Tuesday. Trump, again, was not on that ballot. It was still a resounding loss for Nikki Haley. She won 30% of the vote. Uh, Mike Pence and Tim Scott were behind her with less than 5% each. Keep in mind, neither of those men are running right now. Uh, and the other 63.3% of the primary voters voted for none of these candidates. So, yeah, not a good night for Nikki Haley. On Thursday night, the caucus was held. Again, Nikki Haley was not on that. Trump was. Trump took 99.1% of the votes, winning all 26 delegates for the state. That caucus is the binding uh, primary for Nevada. Now, the TLDR of this is that Biden was found to have willfully withheld classified documents and mishandled classified documents after leaving office as vice president, but he will not be charged. And that is because special counsel Robert Herr believes that a jury would not convict him. So what are some of the details? Herr cites that Biden's bad memory and cognitive decline would likely be his key defense if he were to be charged by the Justice Department. And specifically, his defense would be that he is a, quote, elderly man with a poor memory, end quote, which a jury would be sympathetic to in Herr's mind. Herr says that Biden's memory had, quote, significant limitations, end quote, when reviewing conversations between Biden and his ghostwriter, which were recorded in 2017, in which Biden was, quote, struggling to remember events and straining at times to read and relay his own notebook entries, end quote. Her says that Biden was interviewed last year as part of this investigation, and during that interview, his memory was noticeably worse than it appeared in the 2017 recordings. The president, according to the special counsel, could not remember when he came into office and when he left office as vice president. He also, quote, did not remember even within several years when his son, Beau, died, end quote. Many of you likely know already that Beau Biden died in 2015 due to glioblastoma, which is a cancer that originates in the brain. 
Biden held a press conference later that night after the report was released. He said that he was pleased that her was not charging him, but took issue with the report. Biden said that he did not willfully retain classified documents after he left office. He did. They were in his personal office and his unsecured garage. He also blamed any mishandling of documents on his staff and defended his cognitive state and memory. When taking questions, he snapped at multiple journalists who questioned his memory and ability to perform the duties of president. He also responded to a question regarding the Israel-Hamas war by saying that Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi was the president of Mexico. And funny enough, apparently there's this joke on Egyptian social media where they have been calling uh, this guy al-Sisi the Mexican. That's like his nickname. And that's been long. It's been around long before uh, Biden did this. So I don't know. It's just kind of funny. But yeah, that's that's pretty much a uh, special counsel report. Of course, you guys could look into it more if you want, but that is uh, the best way I could sum it up. Moving on, on Tuesday, Jennifer Crumbly, mother of the Oxford High School shooter, Ethan Crumbly, was found guilty on all four counts of involuntary manslaughter in relation to allowing her son to access the firearm that he used in the shooting. This is the First case in the U.S. where a parent has been charged in connection to their child committing a school shooting, James Crumbly, who is Ethan's father, will be tried separately. On November 30th, 2021, Ethan Crumbly entered a school bathroom and emerged a minute later loading a 9mm pistol. He went on to kill four people and injure seven others at the school in Oxford Township in Michigan. Even though he was 15 years old at the time, he was charged as an adult with 24 counts, including murder and terrorism. He was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to life without parole. Again, this is really making headlines because this is the first time in the country this has ever happened where a parent has been charged and convicted um, in relation to their child committing a school shooting. Now, again, his dad is facing charges as well, so we're all kind of standing by to see what's going to happen with that. I Moving on, also on Tuesday, the House of Representatives failed to impeach Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The Republicans have a very slim majority in the House and were only able to afford three of their members voting against impeachment. Representatives Buck of Colorado, Gallagher of Wisconsin, Moore of Alabama, and McClintock of California all voted no with all 212 Democrats in the House. Republicans were missing some of their caucus at the time of the vote, including Majority Leader Steve Scalise, who is undergoing cancer treatment. Mayorkas was facing impeachment over what Republicans say is his role as the DHS secretary in the crisis on the southern border. The failure of this vote will be seen as an embarrassing moment for House Republicans who have had their fair share of those since January of last year. Homeland Security Committee Chairman Mark Green, who is leading the charge against Mayorkas, says that the House will vote on impeachment again once Scalise and other Republican representatives return in order to guarantee the impeachment passing. We will see how that goes. And then also, after the House failed to impeach Mayorkas, they later that night also voted on a standalone military aid package to Israel totaling $17.6 billion dollars. A two-thirds majority was needed due to House rules, and that bill failed as well, with 250 in favor and 180 opposed. Moving on, newly revealed documents show that former Defense Secretary and Marine Corps General James Mattis worked as a consultant for a senior member of the UAE's military after 
retiring from the Marine Corps. In 2015, the United Arab Emirates joined onto a Saudi-led military campaign to aid the Yemeni government in the civil war against Houthis. They're coming up again. A major component of that campaign included airstrikes that often led to civilian casualties and have been widely criticized for that reason. That year, Mattis was contacted by an old friend, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zadeh Al Nayan, who is now the president of the UAE, but back then was the deputy commander-in-chief of the military. In June 2015, Mattis requested permission from the Marine Corps and the State Department to advise the Emirati military on the, quote, operational, tactical, informational, and ethical aspects of the campaign against the Houthis. Mattis's request was approved at a time when the U.S. also became involved in the Saudi-led coalition by providing it with aerial refueling and intelligence mainly. Mattis's advisory role was concealed for years. In 2021, the Washington Post sued the federal government to gain access to records of retired U.S. military personnel that have been employed by foreign governments. An investigation by the Post found that the UAE employed more U.S. military veterans than any other nation. The documents pertaining to Mattis weren't released until very recently. In 2017, when Mattis became defense secretary, he did not disclose the job in his public work history and financial disclosure that were filed with the Office of Government Ethics. He did, however, disclose it confidentially to the Senate Armed Services Committee. Mattis made clear in his request in 2015 that he would be paid, although the amount he received is not clear. Robert Tyra, co-president of the Cohen Group, where Mattis is a senior counselor, said that Mattis was never paid for anything other than travel expenses for his work with the UAE. Tyra says that this was in keeping with Mattis's policy of not accepting money from foreign officials. He claims that Mattis stated he would get paid on his application in order to get extra scrutiny on the request to ensure everything was in order. The Washington Post claims that he declined multiple requests for an interview regarding the advisory role. After leaving office as Secretary of Defense in 2019, he again applied to work for the Emirati government, this time in a speaking role at a conference on U.S. and UAE relations. On that application, Mattis said that he would be paid the standard amount for all presenters, which is $100,000 plus airfare and lodging. In relation to that role, Tyra says that Mattis was not paid for the speech and he only listed the standard compensation for presenters in order to, again, receive high scrutiny for his request. In his remarks at the conference, the general said that he turned down 99% of all speaking invitations, but made an exception for that one because of his close relationship to Sheikh Mohammed. And that is pretty much all we have on that story. So if anything develops from that, we'll keep you guys updated. But that's all we have right now. Okay, bulletin from the Borderlands released on the 1st of this month. We discussed the status of the Kenyan-led multinational mission to Haiti. Now that is still pending right now. It looks like it may happen in the very near future. But again, that's not 100% certain as to what's going to happen and when. We also covered El Salvador's election that they held on Sunday. I'll talk about that in a couple seconds here. Looking at Chile, on Tuesday, a helicopter carrying former Chilean President Sebastian Pinera crashed into a lake in the Los Rios region. Reports claim that the president survived the crash but drowned in the lake after not being able to unbuckle his seatbelt. He served as president from 2010 to 2014 and 2018 to 2022. He was 74 years old at the time. 
And also wildfires are raging across large parts of central and northern Chile. Thousands of homes and other buildings have been burnt to the ground. Entire neighborhoods have been destroyed. Over 131 people have been confirmed dead and hundreds are still missing with many of those feared dead as well. This is the deadliest string of wildfires in South American history. Chile has been dealing with a major heat wave in recent days and is also dealing with the worst drought in the area in at least a thousand years. So again, those wildfires are still ongoing at this time. Moving on to Ecuador, under President Daniel Noboa, the country is set to transfer six Soviet-made osa AKM surface-air missile systems to the United States with the expectation that they will eventually be transferred to Ukraine. Ecuador will likely receive newer U.S.-made SAM systems in return. Interestingly, these Soviet-made systems were originally actually purchased by Ecuador from Ukraine. Moving on to El Salvador, the country held its general elections on Sunday. President Nayib Bukele won a landslide, as expected. He won 85% of the vote. Manuel Flores of the FLMN won 6.4%, and Jose Sanchez of Arena received 5.6% of the vote. Opposition parties alleged voting irregularities and called for a recount of the ballots. The Supreme Electoral Tribunal ordered a recount of 29% of presidential ballots in a full vote-by-vote -vote recount of legislative ballots to be finalized within 15 days. That recount began on Wednesday. We will take a quick break and we'll be right back. All right, and we're back with Central Asia in the Middle East looking at Pakistan. Last week, we covered former Prime Minister Imran Khan being sentenced to 10 years in prison for corruption charges. He has since been imprisoned, and he has also been sentenced again. Over the week, he and his wife, Bushra Bibi, were sentenced to seven years each for their illegal and un-Islamic marriage in 2018. The complaint was filed by Bibi's first husband, who claimed that she did not wait long enough until their divorce finalized before marrying Khan. Under Islamic family law, a woman is prohibited from remarrying until a few months after the completion of a divorce or after the death of her husband. Now, of course, Khan denies guilt in any of the cases that he has seen charges in, and he believes that they are all politically motivated. Moving on to the Israel-Hamas war, reported casualties for Gaza, we have 27,947 killed, 67,459 injured for Israel. We have 1,445 killed, 10,580 injured for the Gaza operation specifically. We have 226 Israelis killed and 1,200 wounded. For the West Bank, we have 390 killed, 4,400 50 injured. For Lebanon, we have 236 killed. For Syria, we have 119 killed. And for Egypt, we have nine injured. That gives us a total of 30,137 killed and 82,498 injured. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, the number of journalists and media workers that have been killed in this war is 85. The vast majority of those were Palestinians that have been killed in Gaza. That number is 78. 
Four Israelis and three Lebanese journalists have been killed as well. Additionally, 16 journalists have been killed. I'm sorry, have been injured. Four are missing and 25 have been arrested. Clearance operations continue around Khan Yunus to the south and in central Gaza as well. And in the north, insurgent actions from Palestinian armed groups are picking up as Israel has established a presence throughout the area. But again, clearing, fully clearing these areas is a very long process. So that's why we see an uptick in insurgent activity. Border clashes between Israel and Lebanese Hezbollah have continued with Israel conducting targeted airstrikes in southern Lebanon. There was actually one today. Over 130 other hostages are still being held inside Gaza. However, Israel believes that 32 of those hostages have since died since being taken captive. Ceasefire talks involving the return of hostages are still ongoing, but really haven't made much progress. We got a foreign relations update. It was theorized by many, including myself, that the reported Israel-Saudi normalization deal that was on the verge of being reality until the October 7th attack happened was essentially dead. Some regional observers have pushed back on that notion, but we now know that the deal is in effect dead. In a public statement, Saudi Arabia's foreign ministry made it clear that normalization between the two countries will not occur until one an independent Palestinian state is established with East Jerusalem as its capital and 1967 borders. Two, Israel ends its aggression on Gaza. And three, Israel fully withdraws from Gaza. Now, all three of those conditions are non-starters for the current Israeli government and realistically would not be considered by whoever succeeds Netanyahu if and when that happens. Since October 17th, there have been at least 160 drone and rocket attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. The Pentagon has confirmed 146 casualties so far, with three killed in action, two very serious wounded, nine seriously wounded, and 132 non-serious wounds. The U.S. military has launched nine response strikes. So far, four men have been identified as killed by the recent U.S. Air Force strikes in Deir Zor, Syria. We covered those last week. Three of those men were soldiers in the Syrian Arab Army, SAA. We have some in the Republican Guard and then one in the Air Defense. The fourth member was a member of Liwa Fatimayun, which is an Iranian-backed militia made up of Shia Afghans that was formed in 2014 to fight on the side of the Syrian government. That group is sometimes in correctly referred to as Afghani Hezbollah. The man that was killed was actually a veteran of the Soviet-Afghan war as well, fighting against the Soviets, which is an interesting note. On Monday, a drone attack on a U.S. military base in eastern Syria killed six Kurdish fighters of the Syrian Democratic Forces. Of course, that is our main ally in the area. On Wednesday, a U.S. drone strike targeting a jeep in the Al-Mustafa neighborhood of eastern Baghdad killed two commanders of Kataib Hezbollah, They've been identified as Wassam al-Saidi, commander of KH's drone unit, and Arkan Aliwi, a field commander. This is in direct retaliation for the attack on Tower 22 in Jordan that killed three American soldiers recently. In my opinion, this is the most significant U.S. strike since the attacks against our forces began in mid-October, as this was a targeted assassination against a senior commander. The Iraqi government has condemned this strike with the defense ministry saying that the, quote, American forces jeopardize civil peace, violate Iraqi sovereignty, and disregard the safety and lives of our citizens, end quote. 
The ministry also said that this strike provides the motivation for Iraq to end the coalition to defeat ISIS and expel U.S. and allied troops from the country. Moving on, Yemen-based Houthi rebels have continued their activity in the region. There have been at least 50 attacks or attempted attacks against commercial shipping and allied naval assets in the area since October 19th. U.S., U.K., and French forces have intercepted or otherwise struck 12 anti-ship ballistic missiles, four anti-ship cruise missiles, six land attack cruise missiles, 28 anti-ship ballistic missile, 20 anti-ship cruise missile, and two land attack cruise missile launch sites, two radar sites, seven waterborne drones, three small boats, 92 drones, including 14 on the ground and one surface-to-air missile system. On Sunday, U.S. forces destroyed a Houthi cruise missile that was preparing the launch. On Sunday, U.S. forces destroyed two Houthi waterborne suicide drones. On Tuesday, the Houthis launched six anti-ship ballistic missiles towards Greek-owned MV Star Nasia and UK-owned MV Morning Tide in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. The six missiles either fell short or were shot down by Arleigh Burke-class destroyer USS Laboon. No damage was caused to either ship. On Wednesday night, U.S. forces destroyed two Houthi cruise missiles and one land attack cruise missile that were prepared for launch. We got a Naval Forces posture update in the region. Thank you to Intel Schizo on Twitter for his infographics. The Israeli Navy has two corvettes near the Sinai Peninsula. Egypt has two warships off of its coast in the Red Sea. The Dwight D. Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group is in the Southern Red Sea. There are 10 ships in the Gulf of Aden under the framework of the Combined Maritime Forces. China has three ships in the Gulf of Aden. That is a rotational task force, completely normal deployment. Iran has two ships in the Gulf of Aden as well. Iran also has four ships off of its coast and two ships in the North Arabian Sea. India has three ships operating in the North Arabian Sea as well. The British Royal Navy has five ships near Bahrain. U.S. Navy and U.S. Coast Guard have 18 ships in the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman. Moving on to Europe and Eurasia, I got a Russo-Ukrainian war update. This is our last story for the week. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has officially fired Commander-in-Chief General Valery Zeluzhny and replaced him with Ground Forces Commander, Colonel General, now General, Oleksandr Sersky. Zelensky said that he wants Zeluzhny on the team, but it's not clear what that means exactly. Many see this as a bad move. We covered this last week, and this is actually a lot of people were, were fearing that this was going to happen. Uh, not only that Zeluzhny was going to be replaced, he is well-liked among the troops, and he is, uh, he is widely seen as a good commander, but people were mostly fearful that he was going to be replaced Excuse me, by Sersky. Zeluzhny was, again, well-respected among the men in wrongfully received blame for some of the mistakes made by politicians and other commanders last year. Sersky is not well-liked among his troops, and that is putting it lightly. You ask Ukrainians what they think of Sersky, especially servicemen, and you're probably not going to find a lot of people that have good opinions about him. According to pretty much, again, anybody you talk to in the Ukrainian military, his orders are reckless and diminish the morale of the force. He is also known to not be accepting of any criticism at all. And this, in my opinion, is a dangerous move by Zelensky that appears to have been made 
or political reasons. I think we covered this last week, but Zelensky has really been fearing a challenge to his presidency. And in that regard, the person he fears the most is Zeluzhny, who is very popular, even more so than Zelensky. And uh, that it's really not even a secret. That's actually a well-known fact in Ukraine. We just don't really talk about it here in the West. But you ask people in Ukraine and they will confirm that. And that appears to be the main motivation for what we're seeing here. So again, in my opinion, a dangerous move. Um, we'll see how it plays out. Hopefully all goes well and Sersky won't uh, be as uh, really disastrous as many people think he's going to be. Um, hopefully that's not the case, but again, uh, not a lot of hope in that regard. But that is all I have for you guys this week. That's our last story. So I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You can find this podcast on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. Please consider supporting us again on Patreon, Ko-Fi, or Substack. You can find all those links in the show notes below. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app used to listen to this podcast. That helps us out a lot as well. That is all I have for you guys right now. See you soon.